Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 377 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in Three Little Things, the writer Lucy Jago and our host Julia Copus speak about three objects that have a special significance in Lucy's writing life, and Lucy passes on three of her top writing tips. So welcome to episode two of Three Little Things from the Royal Literary Fund, in which we talk with writers about their work and writing life through the medium of three objects that have particular significance for them. We also ask our guests to offer up three golden nuggets of advice that might be a help to you in your own writing journey. And today's guest is award-winning writer of both fiction and non-fiction, Lucy Jago. Lucy's first book, The Northern Lights, was a biography of the Norwegian scientist Christian Birkeland. It won the National Biography Prize and has been translated into eight languages. Her young adult novel, Montacute House, combines witchcraft, politics and religious ambition and was published in the USA under the title The Coven's Daughter. Before writing full-time, Lucy produced and directed history, arts and social documentaries for the BBC and Channel 4. She graduated from King's College, Cambridge with a double first-class honours degree and went on to complete an MA at the Courtauld Institute. Her recent debut adult novel, A Net for Small Fishes, is a fictionalised account of the so-called Overbury scandal that took place during the reign of James I. It quickly became a bestseller and has also enjoyed widespread critical acclaim. Lucy lives in Somerset with her husband and three children. So, Lucy, your novel, A Net for Small Fishes, has enjoyed a lot of success. Um, I have to say it's pretty brilliant. Before we go on and talk about your three objects, could you just give us a brief outline or a taster of the book? So the book is about a friendship, a very unusual friendship between two women. One is the daughter of perhaps the most powerful family at court after the King's family, the Howards. And uh, the other woman is Anne Turner, who's the wife and then subsequently the widow of a a doctor. So she's Mm -hmm. very much on the edges of court. And they strike up this friendship and the alchemy between them allows them to really push at the boundaries imposed upon them at this time. It's set in the early 17th century. So obviously there are plenty of boundaries put around women at this point. And uh, their friendship really allows them to attempt to find the happiness that they want in their lives. Um, so it's been described as a Thelma and Louise of the 17th century, and I quite like that idea because they really do cause havoc. Oh, I think that's a good description. Mm. Yeah. And they're not, they don't go quietly. They, they really cause a huge amount of scandal that echoes and reverberates throughout the known world at this time. So letters get sent to America and Russia about the, the sort of scandal that they provoke. And so I was very interested because it's quite rare that you find friendships between women in the historical record. Mm, mm. And it's also quite rare that you find so much information in the historical record about women. 
uh, obviously I had to sift through a lot of the bigotry and, and bias against uh, the sort of things that they did and the fact they are women uh, to, to try and find some of the historical truth underneath it. But um, Yes, yeah, so I imagine the accounts are slightly skewed against them. Massively. And interestingly, even contemporary historical accounts um, just take their guilt as read. Whereas if you look at the way a, a court trial was handled in those days, so we're talking sort of 1615, today we would consider those gross miscarriages of justice. Mm, mm. So my women, they weren't allowed lawyers, they weren't even allowed a, a pencil to write down the accusations against them, they didn't know the charges against them, they couldn't call witnesses, um, they weren't even meant to speak aloud because that showed them to be sort of brash and forward. So really, it was a... It's a total stitch-up job, mm, but still, mm, mm. even contemporary historians take it as read that they were guilty. And also they were condemned as uh, lustful and vain, and that was the motivation for their actions. And that really hasn't been challenged either. And so it really annoyed me as I was reading all these accounts. I mean, I accepted it from the 17th century, but from the 21st century, you would expect motivation right, yeah, to yeah, be yeah. a little more complex than lust and vanity. And so that really spurred me to go and find these women and it's, find out. It's astonishing how once an account is set on record, how tenacious it is, how persistent over the years. It's really difficult to shake, isn't it? Totally, especially once it's printed. It gives yeah. it a sort yes. of validity. So yeah. even though it might be entirely hearsay and gossip, as a lot of the information about these women is, it's just gossip. Mm -hmm. Because it's been in a book in the 17th century, it then gets quoted in the 18th and the 19th and 20th, and then it becomes historical fact. Yeah. But it totally isn't. Yeah. So it was very interesting to go. It wasn't just research. It felt like archaeology. I felt I had to scrape off layers and layers of prejudice and ignorance and gossip and hearsay to get to anything that felt like yes. a nugget of truth. So when you say court, we're talking about the court of James I. Um, I know your first book was an award-winning biography. How much did your experience with researching that help in digging away those layers, as you say, for this, this book? A lot, I think. I mean, you have to be quite tenacious if you want to find anything new in particular that hasn't been out there before and um, I find you have to research for a long time to really get a sense of who you're writing about because mm. you have to read you read all the accounts which are other people's opinions of the people you're writing about yes, yes. so it takes a while for it to distill inside you for you to actually feel you're finding your own approach and your own version of the people you're writing about it takes a while to get to know them yeah and it really feels as if you've immersed yourself in that period and setting. Um, is that something you do first before you start writing the story? In this case it was, um, because when you're researching women in history, there is so little written about them at the time. So, for example, the main character is Anne, is Anne Turner, so we do know her birth date. But Frankie, who is, as I said, the daughter of this very, very powerful family, that we don't even have her birth date. She mm. wasn't considered important enough to, for it to be recorded when what year she was actually born. So even that sort of detail is supposition and you have to work it out um, from working out when the other children were born and things like that. So I did have to do a lot of scene setting. I had to go out tangentially to create the London in, and the court in which they were moving because by doing that then I could work out what they were allowed and not allowed to do yeah. which gives you a sort of horizon within which they can operate and also you have to work out what they could and couldn't think 
So you have to know enough about what plays they could see, books they would write, what yes, sermons yeah. they would have listened to, how religious would they have been? They were both Catholic, so what would that have meant about what they expressed in terms of their beliefs and so on? So you have to do all that background research in order to have some sense of authenticity that you do understand what they could and couldn't have even thought at that time. You know, the modern ideas of feminism, they, they did exist in many ways, but you have to find where they could have got those and whether there's any chance they would have come across that sort of material. Mm. So you and do, do have all to do that, I suppose, yeah, mm. to, a, to a level where it comes across very lightly, you know. None of that weight of research shows in the book, but we feel in very safe hands, I think. So it's brilliantly done. Um, okay, well, I think it's time for you to reveal your first object. What, what is it and uh, why is it significant for you? Well, my object is something so big, I couldn't possibly bring it in here because it is a room in itself. It's a chapel in uh, a church called San Zaccaria in uh, Venice, actually. It's a fresco by Giovanni Bellini. And I chose this because I remember the moment I first saw it. And I think it's the first time I felt totally immersed in an experience other than my own, if you see what I mean. So I felt totally surrounded by this piece and like I'd fallen into it is probably the best way of describing it. So I was sort of in this setting. It's Madonna with the Christ child and at her feet is um, an angel playing a, vi a viol. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. And then, t well, my mum says viol. A viol. <laughs> that's, she, she plays the viol. The viol, doesn't yeah, she? Oh, she fantastic. Um, so, yeah, there are two female saints and two male saints. And it's painted very much like the artist Giorgione. So, it's very soft. There's a lot of realism. And I just remember being totally, I don't know why, because it's not the best painting of the Renaissance, but. It, I was just totally transfixed by this picture mm. um, it, in a re reproduction, actually, in a book. So when I actually finally got to see it in real life, that was such a moment for me. And I think it really sparked my love of being immersed in history. And that's why I did study art history. And I studied it really because I found it fascinating that these were products of a time and a mentality and a person's individual life and their individual life story all coming together in this work of art. Looking at painting in the past is, for me, the way into the past because I find just what you were saying, the atmosphere is there. And then when you look further in, there's also so much detail that when you unpick it, it tells you an awful lot about the period or the painter or the subject or whatever. So it leads you down many, many, many avenues. Like the fact that blue is from lapis lazuli and it was terribly expensive and that's why the Virgin is always wearing blue and and say the Medici pay for it, then you can go off and find out all about patronage and power and so on. So it's some, an object of immense beauty and immersiveness, but it's also something that is very nourishing and enriching in terms of knowledge and your understanding of the past. So I think it's that combination that's always really attracted me. And you say you studied art history. You actually have a, a master's from a Courtauld Institute. And coming into more modern periods, would you prefer a painting over a, a photograph? Often, yes, because I, for me, the brushwork, the choices that the artists made, for me, that does tell me a lot. And often photographs can lie, you know, or they can have their own, very much their own perspective, obviously, and that doesn't necessarily help you to understand a situation or a scene. I think we think photography is somehow like truth 
and I think it's more complicated than that. Yeah, you're almost suggesting it's the other way. I am. There's more I to find it can be. In, a, yeah. in a painting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so at the heart of your book is this great friendship, as you say, uh, between two women with quite different uh, backgrounds, certainly, and, and quite different characters, I would say, too. But what was it about those two women that sparked your initial interest in them and made you want to put them at the centre of your story? I think uh, it's an example where one on one makes five in this case. So I love it when you meet someone and something about that person sparks something off in you, a sense of adventure that you might not be brave enough yes. to have on your own. Yeah, yeah. And I think these two were just perfect for each other. Um, they each had what the other one needed at that particular moment. And you can you can just see that that's how they were drawn to each other, even though they were very different in terms of their backgrounds and the, and the sort of potential that their lives held. By coming together, it sort of blew all that open and allowed you them... You capture that so well, yes. Allow them to, to be more than themselves. Yeah. yeah. Or to be the biggest that they could have been and that everyone yeah. else was trying to stop them being. Yes. They gave each other courage yeah. and possibility. It made me really want to go out and find a friendship like it because it's just that kind of female friendship can be extraordinarily powerful and uh, invigorating, can't it? Yeah, and they can be the most important relationships of your life. So I have female friendships that that predate my marriage, uh, my children, uh, and and they've meant an awful lot to me for a very, very long time. So they sort of encapsulate your history. And I do have female friends who encourage me to go beyond what I feel I'm capable of doing. Mm. And I think it's immensely valuable. So is there a link between what we've been saying and your, your second object... These are all paintings, aren't they? Yes, yeah, sorry, I'm not very original here. Not at all. Um, well, yeah, I'm not very superstitious and I'm not very materialistic. So objects, I mean, I don't have somewhere I have to write. I don't have a pen I have to write with. I go anywhere and write and I, and I write on anything. I, I don't have a nice little thing I can bring in and sort of be holding. But all my life, paintings have really really inspired me so yes I have chosen three paintings and this one is by Suzanne Valadon so I wrote my my dissertation my undergraduate dissertation on this and I I was in a college where uh, there were no female tutors and I had uh, yeah no female lecturers or anything and I I wrote this very feminist uh, dissertation on this particular painting on this on this particular painter painter, Suzanne Valadon who was mother of a much more famous artist called Utrillo I came across her by accident and I absolutely loved her paintings and I particularly loved this one. So my dissertation was comparing her depiction of the female nude with those by Degas, the one, the painter yeah. who's very famous for painting ballet dancers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And for me, I could see so clearly the difference in her gaze on other women compared to his. And he often did things through a keyholes the back view, often no detail on yes, faces yeah. and so on. And her art was so very different. And this painting is of a plump, luscious woman in her pyjamas with a fag in her mouth and books on the bed. And I just felt it was so authentic. And I have a real sense of this woman in herself, in and for herself, which I never get from mm. Degas because mm. his women are all sort of icons, really, of femininity or beauty or grace or whatever. He's imposing and they're on objects, them. aren't they? So we are gazing yeah. at them. and Abs- Absolutely, yeah. they're objectified. And the gaze is often quite voyeuristic. So mm. it is often through keyholes or through curtains and so on. 
Whereas this, not at all. And she is a modern day Venus de Milo, isn't yeah. she? She's but, sort of sprawling, isn't she, without yeah. a care in the world? Or, yeah, or she's leaning yeah. on an elbow, sort yeah. of lying down on her bed in green stripy pyjamas. You can see the drawstring at the top and there's... Yeah. Very modern. If you said it was painted last week, you would believe yes, it. In fact, yeah. it's in the 1923. And I just found this liberating. I mean, I, I was only 18, I guess, or 19 when I came across her. And for me, it was a liberation that as a woman, I could make art in whatever form about other ordinary women. And as an ordinary woman, I also could do this. So for me, mm. it was like these friendships between the uh, Frankie yeah. and Anne. This was a, a sort of an absolute revelation to me. I've been brought up on, on Titian and the, the great male artists and the great male writers and my father was really quite domineering and never really occurred to me that I could do something. So it was almost giving you permission to be and express yourself in an honest way rather yeah. than through the filter of patriarchy. Great art. Or like, oh, great, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. Petri- yeah exactly. Yeah. And this painter as well was self taught wasn't she yeah she was an amazing woman so she she came from a very poor background so she was actually an artist model that's how she made money and yeah she was self-taught and she's really good and she modeled for Renoir yes and, and various others of his yeah. circle I don't know if he modeled she modeled for Degas I don't I don't suppose she did but for Renoir yes so that brings us to your third and final object tell us a bit about this one so again, this is a painting that I saw it in the summer exhibition and it stopped me dead. I literally was transfixed on the spot when I saw this. It's quite a big painting. And I felt it was doing in paint exactly what I was attempting to do in words, which I had never come across before. Yeah, so it's a white figure and the artist has basically taken the figure from a, a famous 18th century or late 17th century portrait. So this is a, a young Dutch girl in her white coif and her large white collar. But underneath that sort of what we might consider historical costume, you see her naked body and she's just probably just slightly prepubescent so from the tummy button down you see her and her little tiny feet are sort of almost in midair because the, you know the, mm. the, she's almost like she's floating on this very dark background and she's holding a little a rose I think and her face is so delicate and somehow when you look at painting in the past often you see them as people in costume but of course these were their clothes and and what this painting does for me is show the humanity and the vulnerability of people beneath the sort of carapace that they wear of their best clothes for this for yeah. this portrait. And I guess that's what I've always tried to do or what I find very fascinating in writing is when the author manages to uncover and, and reveal to you the deepest truth and vulnerability of a person's life. And so Lisa Rice is the name of the artist, so she's a contemporary painter who I've met actually because I love this painting so much I contacted her and said can we meet I would like fangirled her I did fangirl her and and I (laughs) and I still do and I think she's brilliant and um yeah so I found it very reassuring when I saw this picture because I just thought gosh yeah that's exactly what I'm going to do and I actually bought the study for this because I couldn't afford the actual really so I went to a gallery and they had the much smaller very small little study for it and so I actually have that on my wall and I bought it with the money I got for the advance for this book. So normally I oh, that's a lovely don't story. spend money on myself. Yeah. But I thought, oh, I'm going to have that. And I really treasure it. Well, I'd never seen it before. And 
uh, you know, I'm just looking at a very badly printed um, reproduction from the internet and um, it, it made me gasp when I saw it. It, it mm. is extraordinary. It's powerful, isn't it? And it sums up. And she's a little, she's a girl, but of course this portrait was probably painted because she's about to get married. She's probably only 12, but that's what was happening in those days. So I just felt the artist really captured the sort of vulnerability, not only of her as a sitter, but her in her life. And what, why was this portrait painted? What was it to celebrate? And is it really a celebration to get married at 12 Mm. to someone Mm. who Mm. could be 70, as Mm. is the case with one of the marriages in the book I write about? So I just felt it captured in an immediate and non-intellectual way so much about history, about how we use history, how we think about the past and so on. And I guess that's what I've tried to do in the book, really sort of steep you in the past, but in a way that makes you also think about the present. Mm, mm. Well, Lucy, could you tell us now a little bit about your own way into writing? Have you always written since you were little or how did that begin? Well, it was a a very slow process because I have always written. Very young, I was obsessed by books. I was a big reader of not very necessarily erudite fiction. So I used to gobble up Enid Blyton and so on and Roald Dahl and... That's wonderful. It's funny how people always feel the need to apologise for Edith Blyton. I know, but I I don't really, because they were certainly the adventure stories just did open up my world, actually. So I was a big reader, and I did did actually enter competitions and stuff, and won a poetry prize and stuff like that. And I won an essay writing competition. But it's interesting that actually, looking back, my parents must actually disapprove because they didn't come to any of the ceremonies or ever mention it. So it wasn't encouraged. I didn't feel I could be a writer. It never occurred to me that I could actually be a writer. I'm not sure I even realised that writers were, were human and that you could become one. It, it, they were like a sort of celestial being. So it certainly wasn't in your family? Not your... at all. My mother. Well, my mother taught English, but no, not at all. And it was never put to me that that could be something. And to be honest, it was generally agreed that I was very stupid until I was about 17. I was stupid and naughty. And so I, I, it was suggested I would be. I should be a hairdresser. Generally agreed by whom? By your parents? Well, my parents, teachers, the headmistress of my school. I think probably I was bored and a bit didn't like the fact that there were such strict rules and such strict uniforms. I was very young for my year. I'm August 29th birthday, so I was always the youngest in the year. And anyway, I just thought, well, maybe I am stupid and I I don't want to be a hairdresser. You clearly are quite stupid. Clearly. Double first yeah. from Cambridge. Yeah. <laughs> that was all very, that came very late, very late. Yeah. So my book is dedicated to someone called George Surtees, who's, you probably know, yeah. a very famous Hungarian poet. And he happened to be my art history teacher at the school. So when I left this horrible school where they all was convinced I was very stupid, I went to a very unorthodox, wonderful school called St Christopher's where I met George Surtees. And he was the first person in my life, really, who thought I had something to offer. Really, that that was it was just That's as straightforward so as that. important, isn't it? Just everybody and you needs actually like only that. need one person. You only yeah. one. He was mine. Yeah. I sort of feel he changed the course of my life because he he believed in me, and it was honestly like the sun shining on a on a little bird, and I sort of opened up, and yeah, they thought you you know you're not stupid. You could go on and do something academic and that really appealed to me and how did that transition to the new school come about 
Well, so because my old school told my parents I was very stupid and that I should be a hairdresser or an actress, which of course shows how stupid they were. So I think it's jolly hard being an actress or a hairdresser. Yeah. But anyway, I didn't want to hairdress, so I decided I'd do drama A level. So my parents found me a school where you could do drama A level, and that's how I went I to this new school. Yeah, and, and thank it was God, wonderful. There were no uniforms. You sat on the floor to do your lessons. You called the teachers by the first names. It was vegetarian. It was a super wonderful school with a hugely diverse student body. And George Surtees was a teacher. And George Surtees was a teacher, wow. which shows what foresight they had. And he was brilliant. Also had a very good um, English teacher. So um, it did totally change my life. But even then, I didn't think I could be a writer. But that's where I fell in love with art history, because of George. he was teaching us art history. I think, to be honest, if he taught us physics, I'd have fallen in love with physics, because he was such a good teacher. But he was teaching us art history. So then I thought, well, maybe I could carry on and do art history. So I didn't really get the courage up to start writing as an adult until I was 30. So George is a renowned writer himself. Mm. Um did you have an influence on your feeling that you could be a writer as well? So well, no, because he was teaching us art history. Yes. So hence I felt I could be an art historian. But had he been teaching us English, I might have started being a writer much earlier on and, and you know, in some ways would have quite liked that. So you did eventually find your way uh, to writing and becoming a writer. Well, if you don't mind, um, we like to offer three pieces of advice on this podcast that you think could be useful to pass on to someone who might be interested in writing a novel or a biography, whichever you choose, or just uh, for writing in general. Uh, so what, what three things do you wish you had known when you set out on this path? I was told once by someone that any artistic endeavour that you set about, you need to know what it's about, and then you need to know what it's really about. And I thought that was brilliant advice. It's very straightforward and simple, and you never forget it. And so any piece of work that has real impact knows what it's trying to say, I think. Because there's so much space between the product and then the receiver of your work mm. that it's, it's quite good that you're quite clear on what you're trying to put across, even if the receiver sort of obviously adds their own magic into the mix. So, for example, my current book, Annette for Small Fishes, it's essentially about this friendship between two women and, and a huge political scandal. But what is it really about? It's, it's really about love, I think. Mm. All the different characters in some way are sort of struggling with love, yeah. being loved and so on. And I think and, and not being allowed to love who they really want to and, and so on. Yeah. Exactly, mm. exactly. All all the sort of frustrations and barriers that come in there. So um so that's I found that very helpful piece of advice. Mm. Very good. And do you have another gem for us? Well, I don't know if they're gems, but <laughs> I'm quite useful. Um so this one it was slowly learnt. But uh, it's beautifully expressed, actually, in George Saunders' latest book, Swimming in the Pond in the Rain. He's writing, he teaches uh, a course in, a, in an American university about the, the Russians who told story, Chekhov and so on, about their short stories. And uh, within this book, he says, essentially, what you have to do is find your own voice. And that's something that's taken me a long time, but I think is incredibly important advice. Now, that's something that's said very very often isn't it what do you think it actually means though because it's easy to say but uh, mm. i think a lot of people are not quite sure how to go about doing that well i don't think it means anything until you start doing it 
So I, sp- I mean, this isn't my third bit of advice, but essentially you just have to get on and write and not worry too much about your own voice. And eventually, what, what he says is he spent a large amount of his youth and, and, and early years trying to sound like Hemingway, mm-hmm. climbing up this huge pile of talent that was basically Hemingway. And then eventually he realised he had to jump off that mountain and find the tiny little poo heap with his name on it <laughs> yeah. and build and build and build on his heap until he had George Saunders' voice. And the way you do it, he says, and I would agree with him, is by rewriting. So you write, you write your first draft and then you edit and edit and rewrite and rewrite. And that process of chipping away at that huge block of marble, each Mm. little chiselled mark you Mm. make, is your chisel mark. That's brilliant, actually. I can see how that rings true in my own practice too. It is in that chipping away, the chiselling and the redrafting, that something of you emerges much more strongly, yeah. Exactly. It is a process and actually it's only by the end of that process that your voice is clearly there. Mm. And often it's not something you're consciously thinking of. Mm. It's literally when you make the decision to, to write the word reveal instead of show or whatever. Those constant, constant, tiny but accumulating changes become your voice. Yeah, I love that. Um, and your third and final piece of advice, and you say they're, they're not gems, but I think anything that has proven useful to you in your own practice is worth hearing about and telling. So yeah, we're really grateful for that. So my third piece of advice, in contrast to the second one, where you say, what does it really mean to find your voice? So this one is very practical. It took me a long time to find good practical advice because often actually people are giving these things like, oh, what's things really about and find your voice. And these things don't help you necessarily write better. So the third piece of advice I have is very, very practical. And I wish I'd had it right at the beginning of my writing career. And it's basically get rid of all redundant words. And the example I was given was, you could write, he ran fast. Or you could get rid of the adverb and say he sprinted. And that, the sprinted, gives you so much more in terms of the visual picture it creates in your mm-hmm. mind than, than he ran fast, which doesn't really tell you anything. It's sort of packed with an energy that's not there with the, exactly. the two words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was a lecturer at Exeter University who used to get his students to grade out of 10 every single adjective and adverb Uh, so they had to literally you know this is a two this is a three and then get rid of anything that wasn't a ten um so yeah that's an even more kind of practical way of going about it but um not a bad technique maybe if you're starting out and you haven't realized how littered your work can be with these redundant words so um i i think what's good about that bit of advice is a it's very practical and b it forces you to be very clear about the meaning what you're intending because often we can write an awful lot and actually it doesn't mean very much because we're we're writing to help us get to the meaning Mm. hence the absolute need for rewriting because once you start looking at it in that more practical way am i actually expressing anything in this and am i expressing it in the clearest shortest way possible that is the real work. It's also about the sound of the word, isn't it? So you're much more likely, if you use a, a word that um, could be expressed by two or more other words, that single word very often has something extra to it, like the spr and the sprinted, which gives a feeling of, of speed and energy that isn't, it just isn't there in the run fast. It's true. When you find the right word, once you've been doing this a few times, your instinct takes over and you 
you if as long as you read a lot when you hear the word sprint rather than run fast mm. your instinct tells you yes that is a better option so do you find yourself doing that more automatically now yes and I suppose my fourth piece of advice, which you actually haven't mm-hmm. asked for, bonus. It yeah. is that uh, your bonus bit is to read a lot and read good writers because yeah. that really, really helps. Yeah. Well, Lucy, it has been absolutely fascinating and a, and a real joy to talk to you um, this afternoon. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Lucy Jago and Annette for Small Fishes is published by Bloomsbury. That was Lucy Jago sharing her three little things with Julia Copas. You can find out more about Lucy on her website at lucyjago.com. And that concludes episode 377, which was recorded and produced by Julia Copas. Coming up in episode 378, in Location and the Writer, Mary Colson defends Milton Keynes, Martin Day explores Yeovil, and Penny Boxall introduces Shandy Hall. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.